0: Welcome everyone to our Theology, Medicine and Culture seminar for today. Uh, I'm Warren Kinghorn. I teach here at the medical school in the Department of Psychiatry and also at the Divinity School and am really honored to be here. This event is uh, sponsored by the Trent Center for uh, Medical Ethics, uh, Humanities and the History of Medicine, um, and then also by the Theology, Medicine and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. Um, so we're really pleased that you're here. There's plenty of sandwiches over here, so please get lunch if you haven't, um, help yourself. Uh, and uh, our, our, our pleasure today is to welcome uh, a very special guest who's with us from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, uh, Professor John Swinton. Uh, and the way we're going to structure today, uh, Professor Swinton is going to say just a few things about some questions that he's been engaging Um, I'll have a couple of questions to prompt him and to get us started talking, but really we see this as an opportunity for us all to engage in conversation with Dr. Swinton. This is not intended as a lecture or as something where we're going to be taking notes or having to listen for 45 minutes. It's it's really an opportunity for us to engage him, and I think you'll find that um, that that, that'll be very productive to do. Um, Let me introduce briefly uh, Dr. Swinton. He is uh, the chair of Divinity and religious studies and professor of practical theology at the university of aberdeen i always say that a little bit wrong but that's probably close enough um he also is i hope don't correct me if i'm uh, not um he also is uh, trained as a nurse in the uk um uh, both a registered nurse for, pe- for people with disabilities and also a registered mental health nurse and uh practiced in nursing um Prior to, and maybe even some concurrent with, your theological training, um, he's also an ordained minister in the Church of Scotland. So he carries a lot of different uh, identities and uh, and sets of training, and he brings that really beautifully together in his academic work. Um, he is an engaging uh, speaker, an engaging teacher, an engaging conversation partner, as I think you'll see today. He also has written a number of books uh, that are quite beautiful. Um, so, a few of his books, actually, uh, this is not actually one of his books, this is the DSM. Um, He's written beautifully about mental illness, more beautifully than the DSM, I think. Um, one, one of his books that I'd recommend uh, is called Resurrecting the Person, Friendship, and the Care of People with Mental Health Problems. Um, another is um, a book that just recently won a major award from the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, called "Dementia: Living in the Memories of God," just wrote one. called the Michael Ramsey Prize, which is given only once every two or three years to a book about standing theological merit. Uh, and I would recommend this highly as well. And then one of my one of my personal favorites that is almost impossible to find here in the United States. So you have to like, go to go to Scotland, I guess, to get it. Or Go on Amazon is uh, is this little pamphlet that's called Mental Health Inclusive hey, hey, Church it's not Resource. A pamphlet. It's a book. <laughs> <laughs> it's a book. <laughs> you count that as of your books. <laughs> it's a book called Mental Health in Inclusive Church Resource. A, a volume called Mental Health Church
1: Resource. It
0: is a combination of, put together by a, an advocacy group within the Church of England, I think, that that is um, both testimonies of people who live with uh, mental illness and who are giving witness to their own experience within the church. And then also, there's this uh, extended reflection that uh, Dr. Splinton co-wrote with Jean Vanier, who's the founder of the L'Arche Movement, and uh, their voices are both very present in these chapters on um, a, a theological reflection on uh, mental health and mental illness. And so I, I commend it to you. We want to welcome you here, John, this It's about reimagining mental illness, giving
2: psychoses bodies. Uh, well... Uh, well, good afternoon, first of all the uh, you guys are not very friendly. I can sense that <laughs> <The, clears throat> it 's a pleasure to be here uh, and a, i mean we 're going to talk about a lot of things I think this afternoon but it 's a pleasure to be here to be thinking around issues of mental health and thinking around issues of relationship between theology <clears throat> and health in general uh, it 's funny because you know before something like this uh, somebody like Warren or something like Brett, wherever he is, they send you an email and say, I need a title. And you give people a title, uh, and then it comes to the time when you've got to talk to it, and you think, that's a good title, but what does it mean? <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: but I, I think I know what it means that So I thought <clears throat> the, the most straightforward way to, to to begin our conversations was to, to talk to you about a piece of work that I'm really just beginning to get into, looking at uh, mental illness, or so more specifically, looking at a phenomenology of mental illness. Now, I'm reluctant actually to use the expression "mental illness" because it's very loaded, and I think it raises issues. But I'll hold it there for now, and we can think about how we can challenge that when we when we move on. And so, the basic project itself <laughs> is a phenomenological study, which means that. Uh, what I'm interested in is how do Christians uh, experience severe mental illness, right? Mm-hmm. How do Christians experience schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression? And, and the way I want to do it is I really want to take a lead from something that Warren wrote ages ago, um, which, is, which was really good, actually. And you may be surprised, having read other stuff from Warren, but this, this was very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> And it was a critique of uh, the DSM criterion for, for uh, uh, diagnosing mental health issues. And one of the things he pointed out was that pastoral carers have a tendency to begin their theological reflection with the diagnosis that's given to them by psychiatry, right? So we sit down and we think, okay, <clears throat> I'm going to do some thinking about uh, schizophrenia. So what's schizophrenia? So we go to a psychiatric definition, we say, ah, that's what schizophrenia is. And then we build our theological reflection on, on the back of that and our pastoral responsibilities, as if that understanding of schizophrenia was the only one in town. Right? Now, I'm not in any sense anti-psychiatry, but definitions of mental health issues uh, in terms of diagnoses, are for mental health professionals. They're not for anybody else. They're for us. Uh, they're for professionals. There's lots of other stories that theologians can talk about. They don't have to only talk about that story, but very often we're drawn to it because that story is the loudest voice in the room. It shouts, but we think that when we look at that criterion, we know what it is. What Warren was saying, and what I agree with him, was that if we begin our journey into mental health and illness in a different place... Then we'll find different stories, different perspectives, and ultimately different ways of being together within the body of Christ, even in the midst of the difficulties that we encounter. So, what I'm doing in this story, this study, is to use a phenomenological approach to understand these experiences. Now, by that I mean that what we do is I'm doing is, is taking psychiatric diagnosis, putting it to one side. And listening to people's stories and so for the next well past year and for the next year uh, i've been spending time with people with uh, uh, severe mental uh, uh, health issues listening to their stories right so qualitative interviews just discussing not what causes this but what does it feel like what does it feel like to encounter hallucinations what does it feel like to encounter uh, deep, deep sadness what is, does it feel like to be high one moment and down and low the next moment and to discover you've, you've done some really unusual things in between? And out of that context, uh, I'm going to develop, if you like, a contextual theology of mental uh, health challenges within which the driver is not what medicine says, respecting what medicine says, of course. Well, not of course, I don't know. Is it of course? Probably not. Um but at the same time, developing a an counter-narrative within which we can understand these mysterious experiences differently. And so with that as background, uh, that, 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 that's kind of where I want to speak into. Now, at the heart of what I'm trying to do is to reimagine mental health challenges. Right? <coughs> now, <coughs> how, <coughs> The way I wanted to think about imagination for us purposes is is, is very straightforward, and I'll talk about it again on on Tuesday. But when we think about imagination, sometimes we think about, like, your fantasy life, that this this is something that you just dream up from nowhere. But actually your imagination, our imagination, is fundamental for the way in which we make sense of the world and the way in which we negotiate ourselves around the world. So it would be very difficult to cross the road safely if you didn't have a certain kind of imagination. So your imagination contains the ideas, the concepts, the value structures, the methodologies and the plausibility structures that help you to make sense of the way the world is. Now plausibility structures is an idea that comes from the sociologist Peter Berger, which, where he points that within any culture, there are certain things that are plausible and certain things that are implausible. And there are invisible structures within our society that mark off these plausibility boundaries. So your imagination captures all of these different things. What we don't uh, <coughs> always recognise, and what's not so obvious, is that we're taught how to imagine. So a lot of the ideas and values and assumptions that come into our imaginative processes are given to us from culture. So given are from the media, from our parents, from our churches, from society in general. All the time we're being fed with uh, ideas and concepts that shape and form our imagination. Um, <clears throat> now, what I want us to be thinking about in, uh, in relation to mental health and mental ill health is that the ways in which we've been taught to formulate or to imagine mental health challenges are quite narrow in their boundaries. And they're given to us from powerful voices within society. One of which may be medicine, but we also get that from culture. And we also get it from media, newspapers, all of these things. So our understanding, our imagination around the issue of mental health is created for us and given to us. The question is, is it the correct form of imagination? Now, when you look at the, the way in which mental health challenges are being constructed in in contemporary Western culture anyway, it's very much tied in with a biological model, wherein the assumption is that uh, a mental health problem is not dissimilar to measles or influenza. And so uh, you, you in principle, will be able to track down uh, all severe mental health problems to some kind of neurological or genetic structure. Now, the the rationale behind that is that it destigmatizes it. And so (coughs) if you have something like schizophrenia, it's a highly stigmatized condition. I mean, the essence of stigma, the idea of stigma, Goffman tells us, comes from the slave trade, whereby a slave owner would buy a slave and put a mark onto that slave. And immediately that mark was put onto that slave, the person is reduced to the size of that mark. So they become nothing but that mark. And stigma functions that way. So as soon as you have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, you become a schizophrenic, and people can't see anything much more than that. So schizophrenia, in that sense, is not like influenza. If you have influenza, people don't say you're the flu. But if you have schizophrenia, people function in different ways. So the idea of reducing... These experiences that we have come to call mental health challenges, mental health problems, mental illness, to neurology and genetics is a way of drawing it within the medical model. If you draw it within the medical model, then you destigmatize it because it's like diabetes or cancer or anything else. So at one level, that works quite well, and that's kind of you know we're taught <coughs> to fund uh, to fund our imaginations in ways that. Uh, enable us to make sense of that, that particular explanation. Um, but on another level, it works really, really badly. Because what you do if you do that is you take meaningful, purposeful experiences in the lives of unique individuals and reduce them to misfiring urology or genetic, uh, genetic malformation. When that happens, the person's experience becomes absolutely meaningless. There is no meaning to it. It's just biology. And yet, when you begin to talk to individuals, their experience is filled with meaning. It's not simply... Hallucination is not simply a symptom in the way that a runny nose is a symptom of a cold. It's a completely life-changing event within which you see yourself and the world completely differently, sometimes positively, sometimes deeply negatively. So the challenge for us, I think, is to reimagine mental illness, to begin to use different images, different ways of funding our imagination that can enable us to see mental health issues in a different kind of a way. And a very simple example of that would be to recognise that Right at the heart of all serious mental illnesses, and indeed probably all all mental health issues, is uh, the disruption of a life narrative. That you're going along assuming that the world is one way, and then suddenly the world is not that way. Suddenly something happens. You see things differently. You hear things differently. Your responses to others is different. Your story is changed in a fundamental way. And it's changed in a way that may never go back. And so, although you may make a case of saying, well, the way that we begin to deal (coughs) with these particular symptoms is by giving them medication, which reduces the symptoms. (coughs) At one level, that makes perfect sense. But at the level of the person's narrative, it doesn't make any sense. Because just making you really, really tired so that you you can't see your hallucinations or hear your voices doesn't realign your life story in a positive way. It simply controls certain difficult experiences. So when I, in the second half of the title that I gave, when I was thinking of giving psychosis bodies, it really means shifting away from the idea that mental health problems or diagnosis are real things, because they're not real things. We may make them real, we may reify them, but they're not. What they are is explanatory frameworks used by particular groups of people to help us to make sense of particular experiences. If we then make them real and then turn people into their diagnoses, then we're into all sorts of difficulties. But if we hold on to the idea that mental health challenges are always a disruption of their stories, and that the way in which we deal with that is a renegotiation and a reimagination of the primary narrative, then we have a whole lot of different options. It's much more interesting, but also opens up the possibility for the involvement of a whole community (coughs) rather than an individual. So the idea uh, of a particular group of people... So the idea of giving psychosis bodies is simply to push away from that medicalised understanding of mental uh, health challenges to something different. And that's one way, one bridge, if you like, where this phenomenology comes in quite useful. Because one of the things that the phenomenologists point out is that there are two ways in which you can engage with and understand your body, right? So, there's the corporeal body, that your physical body here, and there's your lived body, right? So, The way the conversation is going just now, and the way that our imagination is being shaped shaped and formed, it's the corporeal body that seems to be taking priority over everything else. So the corporeal body is just your physical body. It's a thing that you can look at, that you can touch, that you can measure, that you can look and see how much lithium or dopamine you have or whatever it is. And your corporeal body is becoming the explanatory framework within which everybody's looking. It's the method and the approach. And the problem when you, is when you have an explanatory framework through which everybody's looking at is you can't see anything else. Right, so it's a bit like a, a lens, or a bit like a method. That If you have a lens you can look at certain things really, really carefully, really, really clearly. But by looking at them really, really carefully and really, really clearly, you miss a whole range of other things over here. So if we only focus on the corporeal body then we have a problem because we'll see some things, but we'll miss other things. What I wanted to push into and what I'd like to think about pushing into is the idea of the lived body, the body as we experience it in the world. The body as it engages with the world, the body as it engages with other people, the experiences, the feelings that we have as we move our way through the world in the midst of illness and the midst of wellness. So it's in the lived body that a whole different set of narratives come to the fore. One of these being a spiritual (coughs) narrative, and that opens up some interesting space for theology and and spirituality. But holding in tension the corporeal and the lived body is what we need to do, I suggest. Because that way we move closer and closer to the idea of wholeness and closer and closer to the idea that actually we are whole human beings who need to be held in tension in all the different dimensions of where we are. And so, within the project that I'm talking to you about, it, it, my focus is, is on the on lived body, on the lived experience. Take it seriously, the corporeal body, because, you know, if, if there's things wrong with your body, you need to do certain things that can help you, but not allowing that body or that image of the body or that space that we inhabit in that way to impact or take away from the big, uh, uh, the thing that is big for people, which is the lived experience within the world. And so before I I, I hand over to to Warren for our conversation, one framework that we could think about in relation to bringing together theology and mental health challenges with a view to opening up new stories would be something like Walter Brueggemann's reflections on the Psalms, Psalms of Lament. So for Brueggemann, he he suggests that the Psalms of Lament are uh, designed to um, help us to reimagine the world in the midst of tragedy. And it suggests that some of the Psalms of Lament were intended for uh, small group work uh, within the, the Hebraic culture, whereby some group of people would encounter a, a huge tragedy or a huge trauma. And they need some way of making sense of that. And the Psalms of Lament are intended to enable you to make sense of that, theologically in that sense, because you've got to remember that, that would be a... a, a if you like, a theocentric culture where everybody thought about things in the, in the context of God. To make sense of that and to move on to a different place. And so he looks at the structure of the Psalms of Lament and he notices that within some, not all, but the majority, there's kind of like a threefold structure. So the first part of the Psalm is opens itself up in absolute chaos. The Psalmist says, I've been deceived, uh, you're taking away your spirit from me, the covenant has been broken, I need you to do something. In the, in the imprecatory, imprecatory Psalms, it gets even worse when the psalmist says, I, I want to smash the Babylonian, beds, babies, the, the Babylonian babies' heads off the rock." So you get this really violent imagery to express the disruption. So Brugman says that this is quite a contrast from the Royal Psalms. So in the Royal Psalms, God is in heaven, <coughs> everything is fine. Providence is working itself wrong. Well. And then suddenly this thing happens, and you get the Lament Psalms, where all this explosion of stuff. But he notices that right in the middle of the Lament Psalms, something happens. In the majority of the Lament Psalms, you get this explosion of, of, of grief and anguish, but then the psalmist changes his tone. And he says, Well, nothing much has changed but I still trust in your unfailing love and your chesed. So the key is nothing much has changed, because the situation doesn't change, but he suddenly finds something in the midst of it that can shift his focus from absolute tragedy to new possibilities. And for the psalmist, it's that recognition that even in the midst of this turmoil, God's chesed, God's never-ending love remains strong. And then what happens? He goes on to worship God. And Bruegerman points out that this is a process of well he described it like this orientation, which would be the Royal Psalms. disorientation, with Samuel lament, lament, to reorientation. Now the key thing about reorientation, which is really interesting, is you don't go backwards. You don't go back to your place of orientation, you don't go back to the Royal Samus and say everything's great. You become something different. You've been through this stuff, it's changed you, and perhaps nothing at all has changed. Um, but now, in this parent of orientation, you're able to, to look at the world differently. You're able to write a different story. Uh, I mean, you can see the same pattern the passion of, of Jesus as he, as he moves through to, to, the, to, to the resurrection. Um, so an example of refunding our imagination in the light of that kind of scriptural model would be <coughs> to think about mental health issues in that way. Orientation to su- extreme disorientation to reorientation, but reorientation is a re narration of your life, not just a grasping of your old life. And so, th- these are the kind of things that I'm, I'm working on just now, these are the kind of things that I've been, I've been talking about. Um, but it's that tension between uh, your corporeal body and your lived body that I think sits at the heart of a lot of the conversation. And also is a very interesting point of tension that enables us, those of us who are interested in spirituality and theology, to begin to listen to stories, but also to tell new stories. Thank you.
0: So I have a a lot of questions. Um, I do want to mention that we are recording this session, so as you ask questions and engage in conversation, just be mindful of that. Um, uh, I have a I have a lot of questions, but I want to ask a couple and then open it up to the group. It's all right. So, and the short version of both of these: the first one would be, what difference does this make for healthcare? And then the second would be, what difference does this make for the church or maybe for religious communities more broadly? So, but I'll ask them in more detail. So, with respect to, so we're in a medical school now. With respect to healthcare and practices of healthcare, maybe psychiatry and psychology and mental health practice in particular so when i when I first learned the DSM, um, I, I thought we were already there because I was told that the DSM is actually an improvement over previous ways of describing mental illness because it 's itself a phenomenological system of diagnosis because it gets to the experience of mental illness rather than or mental disorder rather than to ascribing cause or to reducing it only in the body um, so that 's what I at first thought was meant by phenomenological approach to. To psychiatry, but you're describing something very, very different. So, what if we were to take the lived body seriously within psychiatry, within healthcare as a whole, within different mental health practices? Um, what would look different in the way that um, that that, that uh, clinicians and clients or patients or people with mental health
2: problems uh, face each other, address each other? Well, I mean, it's interesting because mental health challenges, problems, however we want to put it, are quite different from physical challenges. I mean, if you have a, if you have a physical condition, say, uh, say you have cancer, then I can take my medical technology and I can <coughs> look inside your body. I can identify where that particular lesion is, and if I'm lucky, I can use some technology to deal with it then. So it's very empirical, very clinical and there's pretty standard etiological procedures that go into making any kind of diagnosis. With mental health, it's different, because all you have is the accounts, the narratives that people give to you about their experiences. So you can't see hallucinations, and you can't see delusions. Uh, You have to uh, depend completely on the narrative account that's given to you. Now, the way that the DSM works phenomenologically is that, yes, it does that. It takes... The experiences as expressed by patients uh, and tries to make sense of them. But it tries to make sense of them in a way that tries to categorize their experience. So it tries to, to, to look for typicalities within a given group of people that you can pull together as a syndrome in order that you can then say that these experiences represent this diagnosis. Right? So it's phenomenological in the sense that it looks at the phenomenon and, and, and listens to the narrative information <coughs> that is given to, but it looks at it in order that it can make categori- c- categorical decisions. So there's nothing that a patient can say to uh, a DSM phenomenologist that's going to change his or her opinion of what they are going through. Right? Because the, the the lenses, if you like, that are being used to, to um, uh, distill and, and understand and interpret their, their stories uh, are clinical and generalisable. When I talk about phenomenology, I'm talking about the unique uh, lived experience of individuals. I'm not looking for a category, and I'm not Particularly interested in whether you might want to, to call these experiences schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. What I'm interested in is what does it mean for the what do they mean for this individual? And so I'm as a, as a theological researcher, I'm not bound to place their experiences in, in any holder because I'm not bound to treat them. Uh, <clears throat> but what I am bound to do is to, to listen to their story and, and to help to make sense of that uh, and to. Liberate them in some senses. Now, what I mean by that is that Miranda Fricker has a, she's a philosopher, has a really interesting uh, idea about the way in which minority groups are stripped of their knowledge. She calls it epistemological injustice. But there are particular minority groups within culture that uh, have had the ability to make sense of the world taken from them. Uh, and she would include people with mental health issues but she'd also include uh, women in certain circumstances as well whereby if you're behaving in certain ways or you have certain experiences and you report them then the uh, the inherent knowledge within that reported experience is stripped from that and you're simply given uh, feel feel like you're colonized by uh, powerful people as to what the meaning of your experience actually is Um, and so I, I, I suspect that the the, the DSM criteria and perhaps if you use it in a kind of bold way has a tendency to do that to to encourage epistemological injustice what my my approach is is to to encourage epistemological justice by taking these narratives seriously and not reducing them to what we think we already know but actually opening up the possibility that there's lots of things that we don't know um, that have uh, healing potential that is occluded if we simply stuck within the, the uh, psychiatric imagination of public <coughs> Thank you.
0: Thank you. I'd like, I'd like to explore more what that would look like. What that looks like in conversation and on the ground. The other, question that I have, I um, can read maybe a. I thought you were going to eat your sandwich. That would be rather rude. That's right. That's right. <laughs> So a paragraph in your essays with Jean Vanier, which I, I just, you know, praised and said I love. So there's a, this one, one paragraph, um, and I have to say, so the church is not called to become a community of psychiatrists. And that, that kind of <laughs> hurt my feelings. <laughs> <saying. Yeah. laughs> it is called to become a community of persistent patient love. Psychiatry and the mental health professions have their place. But their tasks are different, although complementary, from the tasks of the church. The church's task is to give people back their names.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Can you say more about what you mean by that? What do you mean by giving people back their
2: names? Well, it's very kind of you to quote from my pamphlet.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: so I have to say, John, that
0: uh, when I bought this uh, from. The UK, you know, it's like about know, pull a, few, a few dollars.
2: What's that? What you don't pull a that muscle? That's right, exactly.
0: But uh, but now that the the cost of this on Amazon is like escalated dramatically, so you're in demand. You know, here you need to get
2: That's on the right. distribute. Circulate something here. Yeah, exactly. What I mean by giving back, I mean the idea of giving back the names is a a, a, a biblical concept that I think applies to the process of diagnosis and. Um, In the the Genesis account of creation, we have uh, a fantastic picture of God creating the world, obviously. Um, And then he he tells Adam to, I'm I'm out of sync, but to care for the world. But one of the responsibilities that he gives uh, Adam is to name the creatures, right? So you get that big picture. Adam's sitting down, and the giraffe comes up, and he names it, a giraffe, and the Monkey comes up and he names it a monkey, and Far Curling comes up and he says, there's Far Curling. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. i no connection to that and the monkey. <laughs> um, when Adam gave uh, the animals names, that's what they became. Right? So a, primal, a primordial responsibility of human beings is to name things properly. Mm-hmm. Because the way in which we name things will determine the way in which we respond to them. So naming things properly is profoundly important. So with that <coughs> theological principle that to be humanist to name things pro- pro- properly, what we were thinking about in relation to that passage is the way in which there's a temptation to name people with uh, mental health issues wrongly. In fact, more than that, to, to take away their names and to substitute their names with, with names that are, uh, are quite fearful. And so a psychiatrist might do that uh, for good reasons. So I come into your, I come into your, your consulting room and I give you my story right? I'm, I'm feeling this way, I'm seeing this I'm experiencing this you then take my story and you filter it through your theoretical concepts and you give me a diagnosis and that, 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 but you give me a diagnosis because you want to help me right? because you, you care for me and you want to use your, your, your God given talents and the talents of mm-hmm. your, your team to help me to overcome this thing that, 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 that that's, I am finding unpleasant that's fine but the problem then is twofold. One, that diagnosis then leaks into society. So for you, it may be a good thing to, to say, well, this guy has schizophrenia. Now I can treat him this way. For my pastor, or for my pastoral carer, or for my congregation, it's a completely different thing. Because all they have is the imagination that's given to, to them from culture that have suddenly become a killer, or something, or a split personality, or whatever it is. So when the diagnostic criteria leaks into society, a place where it's not supposed to be in the first place, then that makes life very, very different. And it takes you back to that whole question of stigma. So you'd rather be named who you are than you're stigmatised and you lose your name. Um, but the second thing of that is that when I've given you your story and you've done all that stuff, I can't get it back. Mm-hmm. I've given it to you, you've processed it, but it's not my story. <laughs> like, there's so much more to my story than that. Uh, and, but you, that's, the end of this, that's the end of the line, really. Um, and I'm thinking, well, there's my spiritual story, my theological story, there's my family story, there's my community story. And you maybe you thought they would be the kind of person that you're saying, it's okay, yeah. I understand, he's ill. <laughs> and so you lose your story. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I think that one of the gifts that uh, religious communities in particular can do in principle is to give people back the stories. And in giving people back their stories, you give people back their names. Thank
4: you. Thanks.
0: I'm going to open up to the, to the group. I have plenty of other questions, but let's, let's hear from you all.
4: Um, Thank you for the the lecture. I have a a question um, that arises from my experience when I started working as a psych chaplain over at the VA, first time doing psychiatric chaplaincy. So I, I, I felt the tension that you talked about, that people become the schizophrenic in room one or the bipolar person in room two. But at the same time, I wondered if knowing a little bit about those diagnoses, Helped me chaplain in a way that I can sort of begin to enter the world of the person. So if I didn't know, if I didn't know what diagnosis they had going in, it would have been for me very difficult. Because I wouldn't have known, you know, what issues they might have been presenting with. But is there a way to know that story to help you see them better as a child of God without reducing them to that story? So, very good. Is, is the opposition the, that start? I mean, I, I don't know but if I had gone in there without knowing anything about the diagnosis I'm not sure that I would have known what to do as a chaplain
2: Well, there's two, th- two things I would say that are, um, and that, the first would be that certainly diagnosis can be very helpful for people in the sense that it can help them to make sense of uh, a very disturbing and dissonant set of experiences and so for, for your psychiatrist or, or whomsoever it would be to give you a diagnosis can actually be a, a relief because it's an, it's an explanatory framework that can be helpful. Um, but then again, what does it tell you? If somebody says to you, uh, "You have depression," to some extent that that helps. Um, but then, you know, if you think about the way in which the DSM criteria run, you could have two completely different sets of symptoms and still have depression. So it tells you something and it gives you an explanatory field but if you push a little further and ask what it tells you it becomes a little bit more complicated but on your second point you know, uh, that's a tricky one because as soon as I say to you what my diagnosis is you'll start looking at me like that and so you may say I'm a chaplain but I'd be helped by having the diagnosis because if I go in there I don't know what I would do maybe it's a good thing not to know what you would do. Mm-hmm. Because if you, think you put, because otherwise, what you would, this is how it would run with you, because you think, okay, this person has bipolar disorder, people with bipolar disorder behave in this way, ah, now I understand why this person is behaving in this way. And so it would, the, the danger is it would prime you to see certain things that may or may not be there, but also not to see other things that, in a sense, shouldn't be there. So it's a difficult tension, you're, you're right, because uh, as, as a chaplain, you, you need to understand some things, but sometimes understanding these things can be double-edged in that sense.
0: So I'm intrigued by this notion, I guess, from Ruben, which you mentioned of disorientation followed by, I'm sorry, orientation followed by disorientation, yeah. and reorientation, and to me, reorientation, in my understanding of it, sort of entails a notion of, like you said, not being restored to what you were previously, but maybe gleaning some... Meaning, what's happened from what's happened, and being able to understand things in a new light. Um, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts as to how this reorientation can manifest in individuals whose psychiatric diagnoses really compromise their insight or their ability. You know, so someone who has um, Alzheimer's disease in a sure. progressive state,
2: someone with severe psycho- severe psychosis, or let yeah. you say schizophrenia, um, how this reorientation can take yeah. place. Uh, well, the way the way I would answer that question is, is by drawing on the contemporary thinking of, of of service users' movements around the issue of recovery. Okay, so within standard <laughs> psychiatric di- uh, uh, discourse, recovery tends to mean the absence of symptoms and the movement to a, to a place where you're really kind of free from the illness. What the user movement and the, the recovery thinking this is that actually we want to. Reclaim the idea of recovery, take it away from that kind of um, cause and effect model, and reconstruct it so recovery becomes enabling uh, a person to live to the fullness of their ability, even in the midst of the difficulty that they're encountering so and that, and in an essence, that means holding on finding ways of holding on to your personhood, even in the midst of the, 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 the horrible issues that you may be begin to encourage be, be encountering so it's to do with, with finding ways in which to rehumanize your uh, individuals even though you're, you're still going to have that illness because i mean the thing about the thing about the the, the sam is that that turning point as uh, I said this before about reinforce it, nothing necessarily has changed and you know if you take that into the context of chronic illness that's exactly right so you can languish if you like, and I, I, don't, I, I don't mean that in a polemical way because I don't think people choose to languish. But you could stay in your position of reorientation forever. Though. But if you can find a way to uh, to of reor- disorientation, sorry, if you can find a way to reorientate yourself uh, and then begin to reframe or be within a community that reframes recovery, then the possibilities of health in the midst of illness become become a reality. So I think it's that that rethinking, reframing, or reimagining recovery is probably the key to the answer to your question. And you can see, I mean, you can see Brueggemann's frameworks, you can see the same, it's an interesting way, as I say, in the life of Jesus. So you've got Jesus with, you know, one level, the triumphalism of the entry, and then the passion, the disorientation, and serious disorientation, and then the reorientation of the resurrection. Well, the resurrection doesn't go back to the triumphant entry, and the, the broken body of Jesus still carries the scars. So it's not like you know, everything's absolutely perfect, but everything's different. And, and so it's, it's how you can capture that theological dimension in the practices that you do you, you engage in as you work with people to help to recover in that sense, that would be key.
5: So that's, I appreciate your analogy with the orientation, disorientation, reorientation. the, orientation, the orientation. It reminds me a lot of Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey model, where the, um, just kind of the, the model for most of your folktales and myths um, that have ever been created, where you have the hero who he gets the call to the adventure, and at some point along the way, he enters what they call the Dark Night of the Soul. He passes through that dark night, and ends up going back to the community with a gift. But the only reason he has a gift to give back to the community is because he passed through the Dark Night of the Soul. Right seems like with mental illness, both the church and the medical system, we want to focus on the fact that that person is in the dark night of the soul and maybe treating the symptoms of being there, but I don't think we often focus on what can we do to help them re-enter the community and what is that gift that they have to bring. So how could the church work on um, helping that person transition or find that gift that they have because they went through that experience? Yeah, that's
2: true. So Campbell, he's from New Zealand, right? I don't remember, I, I know he's passed but uh, I remember. anyway, yeah, I mean, you probably want to be careful with the idea of the dark night of the soul because that dark night of the soul is a spiritual experience that there's a movement into something good and, and, and wholesome in that sense, and so you know, if you, if you read the uh, uh, letters of Mother Teresa you, arguably, she clearly was going through the dark night of the soul because she lost all her faith but, but then moved towards something Whereas I think people with with particular with, with depression tend not to see it as a, a, a positive spiritual experience in that way, but how you move people how you how you move people through that is uh, well i suppose it, it, the answer to it is accompaniment But it's accompaniment of a of a, a certain type. Let me give you an example uh in another phenomenological study I did a few years ago, but was looking at the lived experience of depression, and these questions kind of came up again and again, which is really interesting. And trying to get people to to describe what depression felt like. Right, and one woman described it like this: she had described it as um, falling into a deep, dark pit. Right, and when she was at the bottom of that pit, she would look up, and sometimes it would be light, and sometimes it would be nothing. Right? Uh, and the walls of the pit were uh, covered with some kind of slippery... So she couldn't do anything other than just sit at the bottom of the pit. Then. Um, and so the temptation there is to say, yes, well, our pastoral strategy is simply to sit with people. Mm-hmm. Um, but she says, the last thing I want is people to sit with me. She wants out of the- <laughs> So she wanted medication. And so she didn't want the kind of accompaniment where we just sit and wait. She wanted the accompaniment that took her out of, of that pit, really, in that sense. And so there's a kind of... Within that, that, that's her story, there was a, a need for psychiatry, a need for medication, because she didn't want to be sitting there, there for long enough. But there was also a need for accompaniment, for people who were able to tolerate, and sometimes like, that's the right word, the, the sadness that she uh, encountered <coughs> and that she transmitted. Because one of the things that, you know... I don't know if you've ever sat with somebody who's really, really anxious. If you sit with people who's really, really anxious, you'll come away and you're really, really anxious because your emotions transmit. And so it's developing the kind of uh, faithful accompaniment that can cope with the fact that you will, in a very real sense, share in some of that, I mean it a little bit uh, incarnational in some sense, you will, in a sense, share in some of that darkness, share in some of that, that, these issues, and then uh, be able to to... Have the strength of character to, to, to move with that person, even when they don't particularly want to. So, I guess it, the short answer is, is accompaniment, but it's accompaniment of a very particular type. But it's also a an accompaniment that is hospitable towards people like Warren, you know, the old school. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it's getting that, that hospitable dialogue, because I, I think uh, there is a good conversation between uh, psychiatry and theology that runs around the idea of accompaniment.
0: I had a a friend who lives with bipolar disorder who heard me talk one time about a journey and who just ripped into me because she said, when I am depressed, the last thing that it feels like is that I'm on a journey. It just feels like everything's fragmented. That's right. Everything is... There's no direction at all. And I had to feel the tension of that. What does it mean... What does it mean to both affirm that in some way our life is characterized by journey and also... To reflect that from the inside, that's not how mm-hmm. any of us feel at every given time. And what is that? How do we live with that tension? What, is that? what does that look like? Um, so you're clearly working um, specifically with mental health challenges. Um, do you see a need for something like this within other health I mean, the person with cancer also has a lived body and a lived area. That's right. Um, is there a need for that?
1: For doctors or, mm-hmm. uh,
2: or others. Uh, yeah, there absolutely know. is. I mean, I, I, <coughs> uh, we did uh, another quite interesting study on, um, on breast cancer, looking at the experiences of women during the first year of their di- after the diagnosis, because the way in which women adjust during the first three months actually has a significant impact on their mental health uh, in the longer term. And so we spent a year just working alongside women with that. And their experience was exactly that. And the way that we captured it was that there were three dimensions to their experience. The first one was a movement inward. So you get your diagnosis and you move inward because you have to contemplate the change in your identity because what what a a cancer diagnosis does it challenges your mortality but also challenges your identity and now I'm a cancer sufferer which basically means that the best I can do is to be in uh, respite in five year time because you're always either a cancer sufferer or in respite so it never goes away so your whole identity begins to shift and change but then once they, they had kind of processed that there was a second movement and that second movement was outwards And the outward movement was suddenly to realise that they were interconnected uh, or or connected into a really complex web of relationships. So very often we we don't realise how deeply connected we are to our community, to our family, to all the different relationships, and that the cancer had an impact on each of these relationships. So while it was manifested within the individual, Actually, it was the community that seemed to be bearing a good deal of the responsibility and a good deal of the brunt of the condition. And then the third dimension, for some, was upwards, where they began to try to make sense of that theologically and to draw God into their social support structures. Because there's a very close connection between the relational connections that people have on a temporal level, and the divine connections that we have uh, uh, in, in the transcendent level, because they, they actually function very similarly. You know, we, we draw people into our social networks. But it's that second, second or middle phase that I think is important uh, in relation to your question, because cancer belongs to communities. And if we could only look at bodies, as single bodies, then we miss the whole uh, uh, breadth of what is actually happening. And also, importantly, the healing potential of, of, of tapping into that complex network of relationships. So it absolutely does apply to to um, uh, physical illness. Um, I have a question about, um, and it's kind of a speculative question, but about the
3: eschatological vision of mental illness. Um, and so speaking from personal experience, my mother suffers from very severe bipolar disorder and has her adult life to the point that it is such a part of her identity and who she is as a person is that it's, it's hard to imagine her, you know, ever being cured of it yeah. and also what who she would be, you know, like how do you remove somebody completely from that that disorder that sort of shapes who they are um, for better or for worse and um, I was wondering is there space for especially in terms of neurodivergence, people who consider themselves to be neurodivergent but might have a disorder, or something that's listed in the DSM as a disorder. Yes. Um, Is there space for mental neurodivergence being part of our identity in Christ and being part of our resurrected body in Christ?
2: So, will there be disabilities in heaven? (laughs) Um, Well, yeah. um, well, you know, bipolar disorder is obviously can be really destructive. but actually some of our most creative and innovative people have had bipolar disorder and have been creative and innovative because of that. So the idea that you take it away and everything is great is not necessarily as straightforward. Likewise for uh, people with autism, you know, the, the idea that you, 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 we track down the, the autistic gene and then stop people having autism you would empty the universities in about 10 minutes, like, because most of my colleagues are artistic or on the spectrum. Uh, <clears throat> because you kind of have to be, to 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 be able to focus on a various, the, not my immediate colleagues, in case I listen to this Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you, to be able to focus in on one small thing and spend years wrestling with it, like, uh, you know, you have to have a particular uh, 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 Way of seeing the world, so I, I think what you're pointing to is, is the ambiguity of calling something a disability. That it, it, the, the idea—I mean, we'll have disabilities in heaven. Who knows? Maybe we will have disabilities in heaven. I, I don't know. Nobody, nobody really knows what uh, how how your, how your body will run when it comes to uh, to the eschatological moment. Um, but the, the question, understood metaphorically, is quite important because. For example, say, say what we were saying, uh, yeah, in heaven there'll be no autism, or in heaven there'll be no Down syndrome. Now, it's speculative, but it's profoundly practical in the moment, because if you come to the conclusion that that's right, then how are you going to deal with the people right in front of you? Yeah. So, speculation actually can throw up some hidden biases and issues for yourself. Right? So, I wouldn't like to answer your question, um, but, uh, well, one, way, one, one interesting way you could frame it is, Tom Wright... Uh, in, a, in a book, New Testament scholar, in a book called "Surprised by Hope," he and this, he's got a section in there on, on, on a kind of exegesis of uh, one Corinthians fifteen, and looking at what Paul says about the resurrection body. And he said, he points out that the the body, the, the body, the way that Paul frames it is that the body will not be replaced; it will be transformed. Right? And he, he points to the fact that uh, in Revelation, the same thing happens in relation to the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem comes down upon the Old Jerusalem. So it's not like we are replaced, but in a resurrection body, we're transformed. So something of what we are just now has an eternal significance, whatever that means. So I imagine that people with whatever disability you're talking about will be transformed the same way as we all were transformed, but that transformation doesn't necessarily mean that you wake up in heaven and say, "Well, I haven't got Down syndrome." It could mean that we all have Down
0: syndrome.
2: Can I press Can I you on that yes. just a little bit? Because that's a
0: it's a really great question that you ask, and um, it's it's pretty hard when you start with the question: like, Will anybody? Will we carry something like bipolar disorder with us into heaven, or or even what would it mean? What does it mean to be, for this? diagnosis to be part of identity and because with that comes all of the assumptions, both about um, both, the, both the perhaps gifts but also the hardships and other things connoted in that language of bipolar disorder. So I think maybe to just to press more deeply into what you were saying before, the, the, the opportunity is to think what, what, what does it mean to narrate a life with many beautiful um, gifts, some of which are deeply connected to sources of pain. And for those gifts to be fully, fully, um, fully manifest in in healthy ways. And that probably would not mean, like, all of a sudden having no emotional um, reactivity, for example. It probably would mean feeling very deeply in certain ways that are are sort of maybe deeply felt already in your mom's life or in any of our lives. So, like, what does it mean to tell the story differently without having to start with the... (laughs) the question of the diagnosis, because then it's just really hard to get out of that, that pathological mindset when we ask those kinds of questions. Thank you.
6: Um, I can speak to that slightly, what you're asking. Um, I personally do not know what it's like to be bipolar, but um, I know what it's like to have your neurological system not function the way that most others function. Um, I'm a survivor of a double-headed injury, and there were a lot of things that my family was told I wouldn't do. Um, and I also had to refine my identity because, in the midst of the head injury, a part of me was lost and I went through a depression. And part of that depression was letting go of what I had held so tightly exactly to that I saw as myself and then being moved through. Psychiatrists and psychologists and pastors who helped me to see that I had more identity in my faith and in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, as I was able to move through those things, I began doing things physically that doctors had said probably weren't going to be possible, which is why I'm here today. Mm -hmm. But that attests to how the two worked together, Mm -hmm. and through Christ, I found my ability where there was supposed to have been more disability. That's really
2: good. -hmm. That's really good. And I think, you know, in relation to what you're saying, uh, the idea of being in Christ is really, really important and really uh, mysterious. Because w- one of the things that we often think is that we, we kind of create our own story and make up our own identity, right? So you think that because you've done this, done that, and next thing, you are now who you are, right? And so therefore, you think if you, if you have a, a head injury and you can't do this, then you're not. But that's not really what Scripture says at all. I mean, Paul's very clear that. Who you are is who you are in Christ, right? So before I, w- I was a Christian, uh, I thought I was a pretty decent fella. Uh, but then I suddenly discovered I wasn't. I was a horrible sinful creature. <laughs> there was redemption left. And so, that's what being Scottish will do for you. Uh, that's <laughs> right. Just spot, spot the Calvinist. <laughs> and so suddenly I, everything I thought I was before, I, I wasn't left. Like. Uh, and so when I discovered that my identity was in Christ everything that I thought before shifted and changed, and so it's not unique to, to having a head injury, it's actually something that we discover all the time, and what's really important is when Paul talks about it in, in Colossians, uh, uh, your identity, our identity is hidden in Christ, in other words, we don't even know who we are <laughs> the best of times, like only God who knows who we are, we see through a, dark, a glass darkly, and so the issue of Re- reorientate I suppose your identity is, is really interesting because you've got that core where you, you, I am who I am in Christ things have changed but then things were never the way I thought they were in the first place and the key now is how can I be a disciple in the space where I am so I think that's really good really interesting
0: how do, you, um, how do you carry out this project in light of the fact that you see darkly and is there not a the fear that Though you're naming things more appropriately, that you're still positively categorizing people, theologically speaking. Yeah. And you don't ever get the whole
2: story, right? No, you never get the, the whole story. And I think that actually quite helpful <coughs> what you just said, because I think with all theological research, we do see through a glass darkly, and it's only human arrogance that thinks that we have clarity of concepts. Uh, and the, the key thing for me will be. Uh, not to steal people's stories in the name of theological clarity. Uh, and that's, that, I mean, <coughs> the, the, um, uh, the story the, the, the story is based on qualitative research, right? So right, one of the key concepts, and far and were talking about this, the, of qualitative research is reflexivity. Asking yourself, why have I made this decision? Why have I chosen this? Why have I asked this question and not that question? And constantly realising that any narrative that you produce is a a co-construction. So if I'm telling you my story, I'll tell you what I tell you. But if you're looking out the window... Or if your body language upset me, I'll, I'll tell you a minimum. But I might tell you everything, because you, you you look like a friendly fella. In fact, you almost look like you've got a collar there, so I almost trust you. Well. <laughs> and so I'll tell a different story to you. It'll be the same story, but a different story. The key for me is, is to, to keep an eye on my contribution to other people's stories. At the end of the day, yeah... I, I could completely misrepresent things. And I, could, I could categorize things in a way that uh, are completely inappropriate. Um, but if I'm reflexive, then hopefully that will be minimized, even if you can't completely overcome that. That's a great
0: question. We'll, we'll finish at one fifteen. I know some of you need to go before then, as a couple have already had to leave, so please do so. No offense, but we'll, we'll finish at one fifteen.
1: Okay. Uh, related to epistemological justice and what you were discussing earlier, uh, and hearing a bunch of other questions. Uh, I'm curious about, especially with you bringing up Riverman, so Riverman seems to, in his, his project, uh, aim to actually expose or bring the light to in a positive way the messiness that God's more comfortable with than I think even God's faithful it, uh, likes to kind of share. We read certain Bible verses, we quote certain Bible verses, we read through certain lenses. Uh, so like especially like what you mentioned with the purgatory, purgatory, uh psalms, uh, he's he doesn't want to shy away from that. I think often when we deal with like um, relationships between well obviously there's like a, a particular like false dichotomy between able and disabled. We deal with uh, doctor patient relationships, which I obviously I don't I'm not a doctor so I can't understand that type type of hierarchy. But as somebody that's a as a caregiver for a man with Down syndrome who lost his parents, I um, I I think I I think of the messiness that uh, Brueggemann is more able to address um, in in a in a way that um, I think sometimes we're scared to say that we're scared to acknowledge our, that we both need help like on both ends. I think often when we discuss like mental illness, it seems like. I need, to, I need to help this person, not how this person's helping me. Um, I know that it's not like a well-articulated statement, but ultimate, ultimately what I'm asking is, um, in, our, um, in the way we interact, the only way that all human beings can um, uh, flourish is through vulnerability. McIntyre talks about this a lot. And in, in doing so, me and my own particular relationship with people with or without disabilities, or relationships that doctors have with, with their patients. Um, how can we engage with the messiness of life in a, like, in a healthier way than just, I, it's not just ignoring diagnosis. I think sometimes like the discussion is like, do we, do we engage this topic, or do we create relationships starting with diagnosis or not? I think often, um, we're, it's, either, it's either one or the other. It's like we acknowledge our commonalities or we acknowledge our differences first, how can we have like a healthy understanding of doing both? Because I I think that that's what Fugam is doing in the Psalms as well. Because in doing so, I think there are two extremes. I think that if we just look to commonality, I think, honestly, McIntyre does that more than he does difference, we do a disservice. And then if we do the other extreme, we do a disservice. How can we engage that in just our like
2: theological? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, the thing that always strikes me in, R- in Rugerman is that he takes Jewishness seriously. And so, therefore, he, he has no qualms about the messiness of life, and he has no qualms about arguing with God and having a, a relationship that would make many conservative Christians very uncomfortable. With and yet, that is fundamental to the way that the Jewish scriptures run. So I, I guess part of the answer to your question would be that we need to learn how to dwell in the narratives of, of disruption in order that we can feel comfortable with the messiness of, of the world, in that sense. And that takes practice, you know, and that means that we have to just steal ourselves and, and listen to people's stories and not trying to get to the end of that, you know, listen to them so we can fix them, but just listen to them and, and, and dwell there and see what happens.
1: It's messier because of the fact that like, my roommate doesn't acknowledge himself as disabled. He doesn't want to spend time with those with disability. He doesn't see that. But my natural self-diagnosis is the health. You know, that and, and warring against that, I think, is the only way to actually for us
2: to both flourish in a situation. That's so good. Thank you.
3: Um, you look
2: like you were dancing there. It's great.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, we mentioned uh, about some of my previous. Uh, present episode uh, that they might feel they don't see themselves as spectrum. carry like and
2: have spiritual And have what, sorry? A spiritual experience, work, uh, a spiritual experience
3: right. you know, or feel the deity see Jesus, or they talk to God. I'm just curious about what you see, um, the role of the church... Um, as well as the Christian position um, in interacting
2: with those people. Well, there's, there's two things I would say to that. One, that it's quite interesting because it's fairly clear that, that the content for people's hallucinations and illusions tends to come from culture. It's kind of, it's not doesn't appear, it comes from something, of course. And so things like religious delusions, certainly in Europe, would be relatively rare, whereas thinking about uh, you're a a soap star or a member of the Simpsons or whatever, it would be more common, right, so in in other words, there's a cultural construction there that needs to be taken into consideration Uh, the second thing in relation to how churches should respond is is your question how churches should respond to religious delusions
4: um,
2: yes yeah, Yeah, well you you have to be careful with, with delusions because sometimes sometimes if somebody says to you uh, I'm Jesus right? you may say it's well, so a delusion and it's terrible but that can sometimes be a primary source of self-esteem for that individual so that the delusion itself actually may have a function beyond that which seems to be apparent and so if you as a religious person come in and say oh you can't be Jesus because well, Jesus is somebody else there, then uh, even, if, even though theologically you may be correct but I'm sure you probably would be correct. Uh, actually, from a psychological point of view, there are other issues in the midst of that. And that, I think, is when you need to have a, a, a good ongoing conversation with psychiatry. Uh, and the way that Andrew Sims, who's a, a British psychiatrist, kind of tries to work with that, is he says that if our religious belief is manifested in... Uh, a way that's recognisable within the symptomatology of the DSM criterion, then the chances are that it's a manifestation of their illness. So if it just appears from nowhere, and if it, it, it fits the criterion of, of whatever uh, illness that the person is experiencing. But if it doesn't, then it might be real. Uh, <clears throat> actually, both ways it might be real. But it's that conversation, I think, between psychiatry and uh, Theology, so church that helps you to clarify that which is real and that which is not real. But I definitely wouldn't say you just simply say, "Well, it's not real," because there's so many different things that can be running along beneath that claim that you want to be careful. With. Would that would that be reasonable, Dr. Kinghorn? It,
0: it's it's really com- <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, and I think it's really complex and complicated. I think one uh, one person whom who I know um, has a re- recurrent um, psychotic episodes and um, when this person is is when things are not going well God is a very present reality and when things are going well God is not a very present reality so one of the things that this person is, is constantly kind of wondering is what does it mean that the only time when I feel God's presence is when in every other way Things are are not going well, like, and they miss they miss the presence of God, and yet also know that it's not sustainable. And like, what is that, like, what is someone supposed to do with that? And so it's it's um it's not easy, simple yes no answers with regard to those kinds of stories. I would, I would affirm what you say. Could one not contend that the whole hagiographical tradition is filled with episodes? along these lines the holy Innocents, the desert fathers are filled with what seems to be on the surface illusions and delusions of all types of mythical creatures
2: well we hadn't been to psychiatry but then <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the reasons and just answer I mean the church has made them saints yeah in a lot of ways yeah I that's absolutely right I
0: think it's a good place to end on Thank you all for being here. Thanks for um, thanks for joining us today.